Welcome to the PatioBooks.com presentation of Murder at Avedon Hill. My name is P.G. Holyfield. Chapter 32, Rondellus Marks, Part 2. A psych later, both men stood in the common room, near the door that led into the kitchen. They were dressed in the same clothes they had worn earlier that evening. Aramis had listened at Lila's door and was relatively sure she was asleep in her room. The door to the room that Cousin Red had identified as Talek's was closed. And Aramis listened, but could not tell if Talek was inside the room. Talek had left a few candles burning in the common room. As Aramis approached the kitchen, pulses of light emphasizing the frame of the door suggested the presence of more candles or a torch beyond the door. After a quick listen at the door, Aramis and Aaron entered the kitchen. They soon found the door to the basement. They opened it as quietly as possible. Both men crouched and edged onto the wooden landing. Stairs led down to the basement floor. Beyond the shelves filled with food and other kitchen supplies, and beyond the casks containing Talek's prized ale, Aramis found what he was looking for. The wall, the only one not containing shelves or casks, had some sort of tarp nailed to it. Several papers and parchments had been attached to the tarp. One that caught Aramis's eye was an advertisement for the carnival Talek had mentioned to them more than once. Rondellus Marx. Ever hear of him? Aramis shook his head. No. From what Talek has described, this carnival of stars seems to be made up of acrobats from eastern Anara. Aramis studied the floor. A large box sat a pace from the wall, obviously moved from its normal resting place. He leaned in and found that the lower left corner of the tarp behind the box was not attached to the wall. Aramis extended his hand and felt the flow of air. I believe Talek is not in his room, after all. Aramis slid his hand up the edge of the tarp until he reached a second nail. It slid out easily, and he and Aaron were able to slip underneath the tarp into a tunnel about twenty hands wide. A door obviously meant to seal the opening covered by the tarp stood open. Talek must have left in a hurry. He waved for Aaron to follow. Aaron was prepared for tunnel exploration. He had a torch lit in moments, and his sword belt was around his waist instead of strapped to his back. Aramis easily tracked Talek's progress through the underground passages. After half a psych, Aramis knew they were no longer beneath Avedon Hill. If I'm right, we are east of town. The two men reached a fork that caused Aramis to stop. Aramis lowered the torch to the ground, but both paths before him showed signs of recent use. Hmm, I cannot tell which direction Talek went. I believe I can. Aramis looked up to find Aaron pointing to two deep scratches on the wall of the right tunnel just past the fork. Does that look like an arrow to you? Aramis held up the torch and studied the wall. This was not made today, but it is still recent. Possibly Talek does not know the tunnels that well and need a little help. They picked up the pace as they started down the marked trail. 
the passage began ascending at a slight incline. Eventually, the passage began to produce its own light from the glow rocks that were becoming more prevalent. The mine shafts then began to open into small and then larger caverns. At the opening of the first large cavern, Aramis asked Aaron to extinguish his torch. Look familiar. Aaron nodded. We're in the cavern system east of Avedon Hill. Yes, our innkeeper is becoming more interesting by the moment. It took some time, but Aramis picked up Talek's trail in one of the passages on the opposite side of the cavern. The smooth floor of the cavern, worn by a now unseen stream, showed signs of animals, including wolf track. But they had yet to encounter any life along the way. The monk stopped some twenty paces from the end of the passage. Aramis held his index finger to his lips while using his other hand to stop Aaron from continuing forward. Aaron could immediately see why. Torchlight emanated from the cavern before them. Aramis saw that the tunnel they were in not only opened into a large cavern, but also that the opening did not emerge at the cave's ground level. The monk moved forward on all fours until he could peer into the cave. He saw that the passage opened to a ledge some three stories above the cavern floor. At some point in the past, stairs had been built into the cavern wall, allowing someone to safely reach the ground level. Aramis and Aaron heard voices. They continued down the tunnel until they could understand what was being said. Your promises mean nothing, boy. But there are reasons why your tests have failed. Let me explain. I'm done with your explanations, human. You promised us access to Avedon Hill, and you failed us. You promised us the Hunter, and you have failed us. You promised us a power beyond our understanding, and again, you have failed us. Aramis crawled forward and peered over the landing, seeing exactly what he had feared most. Talek was being held immobile by two creatures that were at most only partly human. The creature's backs bowed at an extreme angle. From above, Aramis thought the creature's skulls were shaped more like a dog than anything else. The hair that covered most of their bodies did not supplant the need for clothing, but the creatures didn't seem to care. The only completely human features the creatures possessed were hands, forelimbs that held Talek so his feet dangled above the ground. The creatures faced away from Aramis, focused on the words of possibly the largest man Aramis had ever seen. The man that had to be Rondellus Marks stood at least seven feet tall. He was dressed in a billowing white shirt that went down to his knees, and nothing else. It was clear that the cold temperature meant little to the man. He held a knife in his right hand that would have been a sword for most people. He had a short beard and long flowing black hair, and even from that distance, Aramis could see eyes that glowed yellow. The giant held an open bag in his other hand. From his vantage point, Aramis could not tell exactly what was in the bag. Coins, possibly. Talek, always the salesman, tried to talk his way out of the situation. Rondellus, I beg you. You know Lord Avedon has closed the town completely. Once he reopens the town, I will be able to get you in. Once you are in, we will have access to Marissa. Rondellus held the knife to Talek's neck, silencing the man. I made a mistake, Talek. This is completely my fault. Aaron had crawled to the left of Aramis and had witnessed the same conversation, but through a very different lens. 
This is the cavern from my dream. But what are those creatures? They are not the moon beasts we faced two days ago, and they are certainly not wolves. But once Aaron saw Rondellus Marks, he could not take his eyes off the man with the knife at Talek's neck. His eyes. He must be the moon beast. What is Talek doing here? I believed your promises. I had heard the rumors from one of my former masters in Inara. I have seen the ruins of the old walls at Dax, and you told me exactly what I wanted to hear. I should have seen that you are a child playing at a man's game. But I know how to make it work now. I'm sure you do. Aaron gripped Wildfire tightly. We have to do something. Talek doesn't deserve this, no matter what he's done. Aramis looked over to Aaron. Aaron's eyes were fixed on Rondellus Marks. Aramis gazed past Aaron and noted that several other tunnels opened into the cavern. He couldn't see anyone or anything else within his field of vision, but nearly a third of the cavern below them was hidden from view. The monk weighed their options. We could split up. We could stay here and have Aaron back out and make his way to another opening. And we could pull back a little and call out to Rondellus. Try to negotiate Talek's release. There would be no time for negotiation. Rondellus threw down the satchel he had been holding in his left hand. Several rocks spilled from the bag. With his hand now free, Rondellus patted Talek on the cheek. Don't blame yourself, Talek. Like I said, this was my fault, not yours. The expression on Rondellus's face remained calm as he pulled the knife across Talek's throat. The two creatures holding Talek burst out with hyena-like laughter, heads thrown back in delight. They dropped Talek's dying body to the ground, but not before a stream of his blood splattered across Rondellus's face and shirt. Rondellus glared at the creatures as he wiped at his face. Now look at this mess. Before Aramis could contemplate their next move, Aaron made it for them. The prince moved back and up into a crouch, with obvious plans to jump down to the cavern below. Aramis reached out with a hand, hoping to stop Aaron from jumping down to the cavern floor. But before Aramis could take any real action, he sensed something was amiss. As Aaron rose into his crouch, his shoulder brushed against a previously unseen wire, strung across the opening of the cavern. Aramis felt more than heard the slight sound of the wire becoming more taut. Instinctively, as the wire released a latch on a spring-loaded trap, Aramis slammed into Aaron's legs with his left shoulder, knocking the younger man from his feet. As Aaron fell, a branch whirled past just above his body. As it passed over him, Aaron saw the blades attached to the branch at various points. The tree limb, longer than the width of the tunnel opening, crashed into the cave wall. The branch splintered and broke in several places as wood met stone. Some of the blades broke free. The knives clattered to the ground, littering the passage from which the two men had just exited. Crawling onto the ledge had saved their lives. Aaron's breath was forced from his lungs as he awkwardly landed onto the steps leading down to the cavern floor. He found himself lying on his back, feet above his head. 
The only saving grace was that Rondellis and the two beasts could not see Aaron in his current position as the stairs blocked their view. Aaron looked past his feet and saw the tree branch bouncing back and forth against the cavern opening. Oh, I see. What Aaron could not see, but did hear, was Aramis's leap to the cavern floor. Aramis knew that his opportunity for surprise was fading fast. Instinctively, he threw himself off the ledge overlooking the cavern, pulling his weapons from the sleeves of his robes as he jumped. Aramis realized he could not reach Rondellis with his leap, so he focused on the two beasts closer to the landing. The two creatures that had been holding Talek stopped howling when they heard that the trap above their heads had been triggered. They turned to see what had been impaled by their invention, and instead were met with a growing darkness that blocked out the light of the glow rocks lining the ceiling of the cave. Rondellus Marx was cleaning his face with his newly ruined shirt when he heard the whoosh and the crash of one of his leashling's knife traps. For a moment, he assumed that the trap had fired on its own, as this had occurred twice during the previous week. Instead, Rondellus was surprised to see the billowing robes of a monk falling into his tray hyenas. His wolf-enhanced sight focused in on the scene as he took a more defensive stance. Moments later, the monk he had fought in a nearby cave two days before, the man Talek had later identified as Aramis Cragen, former Aronic advisor, stood less than ten paces away, grim determination etched on his face. Talek's failure is now complete. Rondella silently called out to his pack. Come to me. Rondellus leaned to his right without moving his feet, noting that both of his tray hyenas were dead. One nearly decapitated by the sigh that the monk was now wiping on his robe, the other by the monk's dagger still protruding from his skull. Where is your friend, the warrior? Rondellus sniffed the air. He sensed the youngling was in the cavern, most likely hiding on the landing from which the monk had just leapt. It's too bad I cannot kill Dalek again. He certainly deserves it. The monk did not appear ready to strike at him, even holding his sigh. He now had an inquisitive look on his face. Hyenas, I realized you could create other moon beasts by feeding on humans. I had no idea it worked both ways. Fascinating. The monk poked at the nearby satchel with one foot. Several glow rocks rolled out of the satchel onto the cavern floor. Aramis stared for a moment at the glow rocks, dead stones that had lost their light. And this is becoming more interesting by the moment. Useless promises, monk. That's all Talek was. With his enhanced sight, Rondellas could see the raised corners of the monk's mouth. The man was smiling. Maybe. Then again, maybe not. Anger welled up in Rondellus. The innkeeper, and now this monk, had ruined his plans. He had made Talek pay. And now, he would make the monk and his warrior friend pay. And then he would find the hunter, and make him pay most of all. 
Aaron rolled to his right until his back was against the cavern wall. He heard Aramis's collision onto the creatures that had held Talek. He began crawling along the stairs, still attempting to keep his presence somewhat hidden. Then he heard Rondellus. Where is your friend, the warrior? Aaron moved into a crouch once he reached the point where he could safely jump from the stairs onto the cavern floor. He realized now that Aramis had again saved his life, and he decided he would not enter the fray until he was called or was truly needed. Aramis mirrored Rondellus as the giant moved slowly to his left. He attempts to place himself between me and the stairs behind me. Rondellus may not have seen Aaron, but he knows he is there. Aramis again weighed his options. I should attack Rondellus now, since he is still in human form. Aramis was sure Rondellus could shapeshift into a moon beast at will, but he had no idea how much time that would take. More importantly, however, Rondellus had plans, and Aramis wanted to understand exactly what they were. Where is the rest of your carnival of stars, Rondellus? Are they shifters like you? Rondellus flexed his free hand as if he wanted another weapon. No need to fear my employees, human. They understand what I am and accept me as their leader. Besides, my kind are not so rare in Anara, and they know well enough to stay out of my business. He sniffed the air. <laughs> I can smell the years weighing on you, monk. The land does not sustain you as it once did. I could help you with that. You could share your wisdom with my pack and strengthen yourself in the process. You wouldn't have to watch your body weaken as the day of your death approaches. Aramis attempted to reach out to touch the mind of Rondella. It sometimes happened instinctively, as it had two days before with Constable Lewis. But invading another's mind was an attack on that person, and it was an affront not taken lightly by the former ironic advisor. Resistance that Aramis expected was absent. On the contrary, as the monk reached out with his mind to Rondellus, the beast's consciousness received him openly, like Toback being inhaled by a pipist. Aramis found himself pulled into Rondellus's mind, and they were not alone. Aramis had heard tell of the powers of the followers of Ursula, druids that have the ability to communicate with animals. There were those that even claimed that the most powerful of these druids could take the form of animals as well. While Aramis did not believe the moon beast was a byproduct of devotion to Ursula, it was clear that the communal nature of Rondellus's power was vast. Aramis found it difficult to keep his feet under him, Images rushed through Aramis's brain. The walls Aramis expected to find in Rondellus's mind had been replaced by tendrils, webbed structures that extended from Rondellus into the cavern and out into the world. The thoughts bombarding Aramis were more images than sounds, more emotions than a language. Aramis felt color, the grays and browns of the forest, the blacks and silvers of the night sky, blues and greens of the stream and the reds and yellows of fire and blood. Desire for blood struck Aramis like a hammer. Blood lust. Come to me! 
Aramis realized that time was short. He pulled away from Rondellus, but it took much more effort than expected. Aramis felt himself lose his balance, his mental retreat becoming much more of a physical one. He managed, however, to remain upright. There is too much death down your path, Rondellus. I am more than content with my life. I'll leave the envy of the living to you and your kind. With that, Aramis charged towards the mountain of a man. Aaron watched Aramis attempt to catch Rondellus off guard by charging at him full bore. It's not like Aramis to attack. Aaron soon understood why. Oh no, not like this. Aaron jumped to the cavern floor some 30 paces from where Rondellus and Aramis were locked in battle. From this new position, Aaron could finally see the entire cavern around him. The cavern had six different entry points the one from which they had come, another above-ground level to his right, and four more scattered around the mostly circular cave. At four of the ground-level openings, there were at least one set of eyes peering into the cave, all concentrating on the fight between Rondellus and Aramis. Aaron realized he had to change that. Wolves! Yeah! Aaron scraped his sword along the floor of the cavern, sending sparks into the air. You want to fight? Come for me. Aaron readied himself for the charge. <laughs> I wish I had my shield. An ironic advisor could use any weapon that felt natural to him. There were no restrictions set by the order. Drona Two-Blade, the ironic advisor to King Destra while Aramis had served at Castle Penn, had been deadly with a longsword. Gareth Beckwin had fought only with daggers. Some ironic advisors eschewed the use of weapons altogether, using only their hands and their connection to the power of the land to survive in battle. The length of Aramis's side was catered to the sheath he had strapped to his arm within the sleeves of his robes. Most sides are half a hand longer than the forearm of the wielder, but Aramis required the blade to be an inch shorter than the length of his forearm allowed him to carry a weapon without raising the suspicions of those around him. As a result, Aramis's sigh was shorter and had a thinner fork than most. But the monk was still able to use the outer tines of his sigh's pommel to catch the blade of the giant's knife. It was obvious that Rondellus had never fought against someone using a sigh, and Aramis tried to use this to his advantage. Twice, Aramis nearly disarmed Rondellus twisting his sigh while the man's blade had been trapped between blade and pommel. But the third time never came. While his initial charge had placed Rondellus on his heels, Aramis soon found himself falling back in a balanced attempt to avoid the man's blade and bulk. He sensed Aaron had joined them on the cavern floor. Part of him wanted to call out to the prince, to yell for him to escape while he could. But at that same moment, Aramis realized there was no escaping the room. Aramis had felt the coming of the wolves prior to pulling away from Rondellus's pack mind, while it confirmed even more the truth about Aaron's dreamwalking ability. He wished it weren't so. With his offhand weapon still impaled in the skull of the dead hyena-like beast, Aramis used his robes as a shield, attempting to trap Rondellus's blade within the folds of material. Aramis felt his robes tear, the knife barely missing his still-bandaged wound from Edward Avedon. 
but the giant was too strong to have his knife pulled from his grasp. With a snarl, Rondellus began a lunge with his knife arm, but it was only a feint. In less than a beat, Rondellus flowed into a punch with his left fist, catching Aramis across the top of his head. Aramis staggered back, flipping his sigh in his hand. He feigned disorientation and turned to the side, giving Rondellus an opening he should not have been able to resist. But the lunge that Aramis expected did not come. Rondellus instead took a step back and then hurled his blade at Aramis's head. Two wolves, a large light gray and a smaller gray with a patch-colored face, entered the cave from the opening closest to Aaron and began their charge. Aaron believed from his dream walk that two more should follow them into the cave from the passage further away and to his right. He knew what he had to do. Aaron leaned to his right and then leaped directly to his left. His maneuver caused the first wolf to direct his charge in the wrong direction. The result of this mistake forced the second patch-faced wolf to slide into the back legs of the lead gray. The two wolves flailed by Aaron harmlessly. Even while diving in the opposite direction, Aaron found the sight humorous. The back legs of the lead wolf up off the ground, the dark face of the second wolf wedged underneath. The only plan that Aaron could come up with had worked. The leap he had reenacted from his dream had given him the opportunity to get his back against the cave wall. In the least, he would be able to face the animals that would eventually rip him apart. Combat, and focusing during combat, had always been second nature for Aramis. A byproduct of his combat training and his connection to the land allowed Aramis to sense things occurring outside his direct line of vision. He had been surprised by Rondellus's swing, but this prescience had allowed him to rotate his head along with the giant's fist, changing what should have been a solid punch into more of a glancing blow. His stagger away from Rondellus should have drawn the man in for a planned counter with Aramis's sigh. But instead, Aramis sensed the long blade, not designed to be a thrown weapon, hurtling at his right ear. Aramis reacted instinctively, throwing up his right arm to protect his head, at the same time attempting to deflect the blade with the sigh in his right hand. But Aramis had flipped his sigh in anticipation of a knife lunge by Rondellus. This resulted in an awkward attempt to block the knife's approach. Aramis managed to divert the blade's path instead of embedding in his ear. Rondellus's knife struck Aramis in the right shoulder. The layers of his robes cushioned the blow, but the knife still drew blood as it slid across his shoulder blade, dropping Aramis to one knee. Aramis turned his body to face Rondellus, fully expecting to be struck in the face by the giant's foot. Instead, the monk found Rondellus retreating to the opposite end of the cavern. Rondellus Marks was smiling, more than happy to let his pack do his work for him. Three more wolves had entered the cave, and all moved in to bring down Aaron. The first two wolves had regained their balance and had paused, sizing up their now worthy prey. Cursing the fact that his dagger was stuck in the skull of the dead hyena-like beast, Aramis chose to help Aaron over attacking Rondellus. In order to reach Aaron, Aramis had to get past the two greys that had led the wolf charge. 
The Greys were focused on finding an opening to attack the Prince. As a result, they did not hear Aramis coming. Aramis used his robes to temporarily blind the large Grey while stabbing the lighter Grey from above. The thin-bladed sigh found a path through the wolf's ribcage and touched the animal's heart. Aaron's sword was already bloodied as Aramis reached his side. One of the three wolves that had entered the cave after the first group had fallen to his blade. He frantically waved his sword before him in an attempt to keep the other two wolves at bay. He could feel Aramis's left heel resting against the edge of his right boot. Aaron's left boot was wedged against the cave wall. With Aramis at his side and the cavern wall at his back, Aaron felt empowered for a moment. He flicked his sword at the smaller of the two wolves facing him. The animal that had come too close backed away with a gash across its nose. Two against four. I like these. Uh, oh no. Even as Aramis permanently blinded the large gray wolf with two separate strikes with his sigh, he observed what Aaron had just seen. Five more wolves had emerged from the tunnels and were approaching them. Tapping into the fading connection to Rondellis' communal mind link, Aramis realized several more wolves would soon reach their location. To make matters worse, moments later, Rondellis howled. In the short time it had taken Aramis to work his way to Aaron's side, Rondellis had made the change from man to beast. A small part of Aramis was upset that he had not been able to witness the change firsthand, but this feeling passed quickly. The wolves before them responded immediately. Their growling ceased, and the two wolves closest to Aaron moved back. The wolves were giving their brothers time to approach for an even more coordinated attack on the two men. Aaron. Aramis spoke in an even tone, knowing his voice would be understood by the young prince. We must rush Rondellis. Wait for my signal. The five wolves that had just entered the cave moved forward and joined the other two, creating a pack of seven. Four stood in front of the other three, creating two lines of impending death. Maramus knew that none of his abilities could prevent the two of them from being mauled by the wolves and Rondellis. All he could do was try to open a path for Aaron and hope. Praise Arsh. The first line of wolves inched forward, growling and barking anew. Two of the four wolves shook their heads as they moved. It reminded Aramis of someone shaking water from their ears after a swim. Rondellis is telling them to attack, to ignore the long-toothed fangs we hold in our hands. Aramis concentrated on his connection to the River of Magic, feeling its mists wash over him. The wolves fell back on their haunches, ready to lunge at them. Aramis extended his left arm before him as if hurtling a knife, just as he had earlier that day when confronting Lane Nichols. But instead of the small push he had used to move the lever in the library basement, the monk released his power as a tight ball of compressed air. As the invisible orb passed over the first line of wolves, 
the monk snapped his fingers, a physical trigger that allowed him to psychically complete the deed. The ball of air expanded outward as a concussive blast, beating at the wolves around it. Aramis fell to both knees, strength spent. The four wolves directly in front of Aaron were tossed aside as if they had been lifted by the tail and flipped end over end. One was battered against the nearby wall of the cave. Two others were catapulted off to Aaron's right, squealing as they crashed against each other in the hard stone floor of the cavern. Aaron had to dodge the fourth wolf as it was hurled past him by the blast. The three wolves in the back row were only slightly more fortunate than their brothers. As the ball of air discharged directly in front of them, two were thrown back head over tail. The closer of the two had its neck snapped by the blast. The third, a black and gray with a muzzle more square than its brothers, standing furthest away from the concussion, was raised off the ground by the gust of air but amazingly, rotated its body in midair and landed deftly on its four paws. Aaron was buffeted by the concussion of air, but was able to keep his feet. Gritting his teeth, Aaron charged through the opening created by the blast. The confusion allowed Aaron to make his way across the cavern floor. As he rushed forward, Aaron nearly decapitated the black and gray that had just landed on its four paws. Assuming Aramis was right behind him, Aaron threw himself at the moon beast with reckless abandon, hoping to distract the beast while Aramis moved in to score a lethal blow. As Aaron landed hard against the far wall of the cavern, knocked aside by a toss of the great beast's head and neck, Aaron realized that he was alone. Without time to even look over to his mentor, Aaron bounced to his feet. Rondellis did not attack Aaron, instead allowing the prince to dictate the action. Aaron knew he should be afraid of the beast that was nearly three times as large as any wolf in the cave, but the rush of the battle overwhelmed any fear inside him. As Aramis had described to him two days before, Rondellis' intelligence was evident in the facial expressions and actions of the moon beast. Aaron danced with the great monster, using wildfire to keep Rondellis at a distance. Rondellis seemed content to wait for Aaron to tire and soon Aaron understood why. Even on all fours, the moon beast's eyes were level with Aaron's chest. Just above the animal's head, Aaron saw several more wolves had entered the cave. He was out of time. You've been listening to Murder at Avedon Hill, written and produced by P.G. Holyfield. Please visit pgholyfield.com for more information on this podcast and the author. Most of the music in this podcast generously provided by Shira Common through magnatune.com, Kevin McLeod through incompetech.com, and David Beard through davidbeardmusic.com. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a review at iTunes and on patiobooks.com and become part of the show by leaving a message on the Cairn line at 704-315-5884. This podcast is copyright 2007-2008, PG Holyfield, and is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works, 
3.5 U.S. license.